So the London Baptist Confession of Faith is a lengthy document. I am going to highlight a few phrases over this time, and I want to take you to chapter 2. And this evening, I want us to just look at one phrase. Now, if you were here several years ago when we went through the Doctrine of God series, we had quite a bit of time on this phrase that I'm about to read to you. But if you missed that, or you were here and you still have questions about these words, I want to try to explain why they may be important. The first paragraph of chapter 2 of our confession describes the doctrine of God. I will not read the whole paragraph except to say, notice all of the words that describe our God. You've heard me say this before. We live in a day where we need to say more rather than less about what the scriptures say about God. It just will not do to have one phrase or one sentence statements about God. There's, there's too much that the scripture says. So what does it say? It says that God is but one living and true God. Then it continues with words that we recognize quite readily. Infinite in being and perfection. Right? Later on it says immutable or unchanging. Immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty. These are words that of course, if you have questions about, find me, find uh, Chad, find one of our uh, other teachers. But I want to take you to words that perhaps for many of us are going to be less well known. And that is the phrase a couple of sentences in, well, lines in, it's really one long sentence, that says this, that God is a, quote, most pure spirit, invisible, and then this phrase here, without body parts or passions just that phrase tonight what is it and why is it important why is it worth having that as a part of what we confess so three words are given and the statement is god doesn't have any of these doesn't have a body doesn't have parts doesn't have passions okay well, perhaps we can handle this in the order in which it's listed, and it might be most simple to do this. The first thing is that the confession is noting that God is without a body. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ put on flesh and dwelt among us. But God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. Why is that important? Well, we're going to be asked this if we are teaching our children in family worship, aren't we? Um, the Bible says that God sees us with his eyes, or that God has hands. Does God have wings? Right? Does God have a mouth? And on and on it goes. And of course, we need to know that when we read passages of Scripture that describe God with human-like body parts, that's for us. Here's what I mean. When we read, for instance, that God's eyes are searching the earth, it doesn't mean that God has a physical body with physical eyes, but that we are getting a description of God in human speak. We're getting, you ready for the big ticket words? Anthropological or anthropomorphic language. We are being told something about our God in ways that we can understand. We know what it's like to have eyes that look around. God is not bound by having eyes that have to shift to and fro, right? God is not bound by saving with a hand only, but it's a description of God. And the writers of the confession are saying that God doesn't have a body. God is infinite. 
God is everywhere at the same time. God is not bound by physical form. And that's what is being meant here. God doesn't have a body. I'll see if you have questions in a moment, but I want to move to the other two. God is without parts. What in the world does that mean, and why is that important for God not to have parts? Several years ago, we as a church went through a series on the doctrine of God from the pages of Scripture. And during that series, I'm almost positive we uh, encountered this statement. That if I were to say to you, who is the most complex being in all the universe? If you thought for just a second, you might say, well, I guess it would have to be God. Because God is the biggest. God is the greatest. God is the grandest. But actually, God isn't complex. God is simple. I'll let that sink in for just a moment. God is simple. I'm just going to let that hang there for a second because the first time I heard that, it was very difficult for me to wrap my minds around that because how do we use the word simple? Simple-minded, easy. Oh, that math test was, well, I never said that. Um, that history test, maybe that was simple for me. Maybe the math test is, is uh, simple for you. Simple for us means really easy to understand. But the ancient writers and theologians up through the Reformation, when they used the word simple, they were borrowing from older philosophy and theology words. What they meant is without parts, not made up of parts. So to say that God is not made up of parts means this. God is not constructed with a whole lot of parts. Now, I know you've sat through two Lord's Day sermon, a wonderful lunch, a congregational meeting, and it's the end of the day, but I do want us to press into this for just one second. If God were made up of parts like bricks making up your house, what would that mean? God's existence requires those bricks in order to be, right? Your house is only your house because there's lots of little parts. So what came first, the bricks or your house? Well, the bricks. We'd have a problem if we said that about our God. Well, God is made up of some love and some mercy and, you know, some power and some knowledge. You mix all that together in your mixer and there's God. Biggest thing in the world. Everything that I just said only in an attempt to describe it to us. Everything that I just said is completely wrong. God is not a mixture of pre-existing things. God doesn't require all these things in order to exist. He just is. So what does the scripture say? You want some biblical evidence. God is love. He just is love. He's not made up of a lot of love that's going to hopefully grow when he falls more in love with you. No, no, he just is love. He is is just. He is power. And so when the writers of the confession are trying to find a way of talking about God, they want to say, look, he doesn't have a body, but he's not made up of all these parts. Why is that important to me? Why, why is that practically important? Well, because God is simply God. And God is all that God is, and everything else, including what love is, and what justice is, and all of these attributes of God are defined by God, not the other way around. 
So you drive your car and you get a speeding ticket and you have to go to court. I'm sure that never happens to any of you. You go there and you stand before a judge who perhaps will give you a little bit of a lecture and then that judge is supposed to do what? Go outside of himself or herself to a standard of justice and apply it to you. That's not how God is. God is not bound by an outside standard of justice as if he was made up of a little bit of it. No, he just is just. He is the standard, right? So God is without body, without parts, and then here's this interesting phrase, God is without passions. Let's talk about that and then talk about why it's important and see what questions or discussion we may have. What does it mean for God to be without passions? Just like the word simple earlier, when we say God is without passions, it almost sounds like we're saying God is very stoic because of how we think about the word. What's the word passion mean to us? When we use the word passion, how do we use that word? Emotion? Yeah, what else? I mean, in a given week, you might be passionate. Yeah, what? Have great love for, yeah. Right? I'm passionate about world peace. I'm passionate about a good cup of coffee. Those are not on the same level, by the way. Right? We use it that way. And so when we say God was without passions, it's almost as if, we're, well, does, does God not have love? Does he not? And this requires us to know what is meant by that word. It's an old document, and so sometimes you kind of have to know what words used to mean. The word passion comes to us really by way of Aristotle. Remember him? Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato, the big Greek three. Aristotle defined the word passion this way. He called it a mode of being. Passion means to be acted upon. So I'm standing somewhere, and one of you runs up to me to shake my hand, for instance. You shake my hand, and you say some kind words. Your action has now produced an internal change in me. That's called a passion. Or let's say I'm standing somewhere, and someone runs up to me and hits me. That produces an internal change in me, right? Because I am the recipient of an action, and I am a passions individual. I can be acted upon at any moment, and changes can happen in me. But guess what? God is not like that. God is not sitting in heaven, as if he has a body, located in one particular place. But he's not sitting in heaven, waiting to interact with you, and then when you do something, it produces a change in God. God cannot be acted upon in the way that we as creatures with passions can be. God simply is, and God acts, and God has perfections. So why is that important? Well, don't we often think about God in this way? I know that he loves me. He sent his son to die for me. And if and as I walk with God, he will love me more because he will grow in love for me once he sees how I perform. Now, everything that I just said to you is absolutely wrong. <laughs> That's not how God loves you. God just is love. And he is not looking at you 
Christian, I'm about to preach another sermon. He's not looking at you, waiting to be moved to love you more. In one sense, because God is love, you cannot be loved more than you already are by the living God. This is why it's important. But go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or many Christian bookstores and you will find literature lining the shelves that describes a God who seems to be a God with passions. A God who can be manipulated or adjusted. A God who will respond to you in this way. A God who takes risks. A God who will interact with you. God does relate to us by way of covenant, but a God who will interact with you, and it almost sounds like what? God is just a really big one of us. God actually places his love on undeserving sinners, the perfection of love, and he's not shifting. He's not looking at your life going, they just did this, and now there's this change within me. So now I'll do this. (laughs) Or they didn't do that. So now there's a shift within me. See, that's how we relate, right? You promise me something. You you don't come through. I feel a certain way, so I have to figure out how am I going to respond to you. That's human relationship. Our God is not like that. He's not shifting in his passions. So that word passion simply means to be acted upon. You, by your actions, do not produce any changes in God. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. So these things are actually very important to confess. If you're looking at our confession and you see, what does it mean for God to not have a body? We, We mostly understand that. But for God to not have parts... He's not dependent on things in order to be. For God not to have passions means that God is not in any way changed internally by your lack, by my lack. If you want to undertake this a little further, before we look at questions, let me say this. Uh, we have a little book on our shelf, God Without Passions, a primer. I would highly recommend this book. It's, it's actually very devotional in its description. It's very well written, very clear. Uh, But it can be helpful to think about what does it mean for God not to have passions? I went to church, I had a good day, and at the end of the day, my preacher said, God doesn't have passions, and now I'm deflated. (laughs) No, it's actually a really grand thing. If you really want to dive in, I mean deep, to what does it mean that God doesn't have parts? We also have a book on our shelf, All That Is In God, by James Dozal. This one's a little heavier. This one's going to require some heavy lifting, okay? But I think it's worth it if you're willing to engage these. The reason that this is important in 2023 is the further we've gotten away from these kinds of statements about God, the more literature has been written that describes God in, quite frankly, less than biblical ways. And why that's important is because it makes it sound like God is in a shifting relationship with us. One famous book in the late 90s, early 2000s, that took kind of the Christian world by storm was a book uh, written that described God in very human-like ways. And it was very popular. Undoubtedly millions of copies sold. 
Um, and it described God as a God who, in relationship with us, takes risks. Now, what's the problem with that? God takes risks. What does that imply? Millions of Christians are reading this, absorbing the idea that God is in relationship with us and he takes risks. God doesn't take risks. What does God not know? What is there for God to grow in? And thankfully, God's essence and God's saving work, praise be his name, is not dependent on how well I perform. Right? And yet, year after year, these kinds of books are being written that describe God in a way that makes him sound like he's dependent on certain things or that he's got passions, that he's shifting in relationship with us. So I know that our confession is a lengthy confession. You read the paragraph and you think, whoa, that was a mouthful. And you get to this. What does it mean for God to not have body parts or passions? I would submit to you that there is a glory here in those three statements. God is not bound like you and I are to material things. God is not made up of any parts. He is the author of all lesser parts. And God is not acted upon by any creature. He is not changed in any way by what we do and don't do. What questions or thoughts do you have about why these three things might be important for us? Or questions on what is meant by this doctrine? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So just for the sake of the recording, how do we read passages in the Old Testament where it seems like that we're, we're in a give and take of sorts with God or because we did this, God is going to do this, those kinds of things. Accurate summary, brother? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah when the prophets say, you know, thus says the Lord, you've done this and I'm going to punish you. Yep. If you come back to me, I'll, I'll bless you. Right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I think it's best to read those kinds of things as the scripture using emotive language to describe actions of God, not the being of God. So an, an even perhaps stronger example would be play- emotion, emotional language. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for instance, like, um, you know, where it seems like in Genesis, God looks down upon what he has made and he is sorry that he made man. I don't know how much clearer that is, preacher, that God seems to have a shift. And those times are times where the scripture puts in almost human-like speak uh, descriptors for us to understand God's action. In one moment, God acts in this way, and another moment, he is going to act in this way. Not that those two are inconsistent, but that he is 
going to act in one way in a moment and act in another way in another moment. Here's what I mean. Let's say that a person is unsaved today. Then they are under the wrath of God. But let's say they are gloriously converted tomorrow by his grace. The scripture then describes their relationship with God in a very different way. They're no longer under God's wrath. Well, what has changed? Has God changed? Not at all. It's our position before God because of Christ. And so similarly in the Old Testament, when we see this obeying and disobeying, blessing and cursing kind of language, it happens all throughout the scripture. And sometimes it's described in a way that makes it sound like God is internally changed, but the best way for us to understand that would be we're getting human kinds of descriptions of a God who is acting moment by moment. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question, brother. Other questions? Yep. Sure. So the question there is, what, what is social Trinitarianism and why is it bad and not in line with our confession? That will require us to go further in that paragraph, but that's okay. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question. So social Trinitarianism in a nutshell is sort of, and I probably had this kind of idea growing up. It's the idea that I know that we worship one God, but God is three persons, and so they are in relationship with one another. It's almost the God of the boardroom, right? God the Father sits here, God the Son sits here, and God the Holy Spirit sits here. And they sort of have this relationship and try to interrelate with one another. And the problem with that is that it begins to really picture God almost as three separate beings. When God is one God, existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it gets technical, but our confession says, what distinguishes the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from one another is that the Father is not the Father is not eternally generated like the Son is. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but they are not three separate beings. But a lot of Christian literature out there today almost makes it sound like we are tritheists. We worship three gods. When we don't, we worship one God. Now that takes us further than that phrase of without body parts and passions. But that's what social Trinitarian is, social Trinitarianism is. And I think a lot of true godly brothers and sisters out there have sort of fallen into talking about God that way. I know that I I'm certainly have in my life growing up. You just think, well, there's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Spirit. And we sort of separate them because our minds are finite. So I think we have to have a, a level of grace for those who perhaps don't mean to fall into that while we gently try to encourage them, hey, like, what does it mean for God to be? One, right? 
Yeah. 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 Great question. How do we how do we think of just to summarize what do we what do we do with prayer and our relationship with God? There's a couple of things in the scripture. First of all, and the confession speaks to this, but God relates to us by way of covenant because he's creator and we are creature. And so there is a covenantal arrangement even before the fall wherein God has certain terms of relationship with us. But when we say that God is without passions, we don't mean that God is without perfections. It's just that God doesn't have internal shifts like you and I do. God doesn't have emotional expression in the same way that we do. Emotive words are used in Scripture. We've used a couple of wrath. You know, God is long-suffering. But when we think about praying to God, I think that we can say, God, who is infinite love, has chosen to set his affections on me. I am more loved in Christ than I will ever be able to understand. Even in eternity, we'll constantly be learning. It's a topic for another day. And so when I go to the Lord, I know that he has set his favor upon me. And I go to him through Christ, who, who is the God-man, who does what? Sympathizes with me in my weakness. You know, when I pray to the living God in Jesus' name, I'm praying in the name of the one who can sympathize with what? Hebrews, my weakness, Right? And so that's how I would encourage us to pray, not that, oh, my prayers don't, and you're not saying this, brother, it's a great question. My prayers don't produce a change in God. No, 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 God is steady, and yet I am enveloped in that steady love, and I have a Savior who absolutely and completely can sympathize with me, except without sin, who makes all of those prayers acceptable to the infinite God, right? It's a great, great question. Others, not all of these are going to be ultra-philosophical, by the way. This is just, we're walking through chronologically our confession, so this is the first one. It's like, what does that mean, God is without parts and passions? Other questions? You got about 10 minutes or so, yeah. What's the remedy for us seeing God as like us, just bigger? Yeah. I have a good friend who uh, does a lot of counseling work, and he's said before that he will counsel individuals, and they'll come to him with certain problems and temptations. And he will seemingly do the strangest thing. Um, and sometimes I do this, but he's notorious for this. He will encourage, and it's usually men that he's working with, he will encourage men to not simply read about the, that particular sin or temptation that they're dealing with, but to really study the doctrine of God. And he'll walk with them through that process. And the reason that he does that is because he's trying to, 
He's trying to increase their affections for the greatest thing while they are tempted to hold on to a much lesser sinful thing, right? And I think the remedy for us to grow in false belief of God is really to, to be okay with studying and listening to theology on the doctrine of God and to really reflect and to meditate on what it means for God to be God and for us not to be God and for God not to be like us. To, to just take up the confession uh, sometime as you're reading and just read the first paragraph. If you were to meditate for a month on each of those words, it would potentially have the possibility of really increasing your own devotion to the Lord. I mean, you, you, you read a, a phrase like, God is every way infinite. Well, if you're like me, at some point in my life, I had to look up the word infinite. What does that mean? Well, it means not finite, not bounded. God is not limited in any way. By age, by space, by body, by time. You just start to meditate on that one. I am praying to the God who is in no way limited. And that has a way of really increasing our reverence for the living God, right? Um, just, just one particular application. Good. What else? Yeah, brother. Happens to me so, at least yeah, several times a week, brother. Yeah, so is, is your thought just, help, help me follow your, your thought there, brother. You're you just saying the scripture is our, our greatest aid as we pray to God? Or? Right, right, yeah. because uh, when I mentioned the word confusion is that if, if, if I look at God like someone, uh, like focusing myself on that word passion, mm -hmm. yeah. for example, yeah. then why should I pray? Because it's going to do it anyway. Or, or why should I? Dislocating that emotional relation with my my savior and creator, and, and because of that, because of 
that focusing on, oh, he has, he has no passions, he has no body, he's not like us, so I'm not going to talk to him like I talk to my best yeah. friend or my wife or so on, see? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm saying that because I'm, I'm not trying to, to impose myself, but, but I've heard several comments on prayer. Yeah. 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 I think the bottom line there, brother, is that any interaction we see, even in the Old Testament, of of individuals who are saying what they're saying, you know, when Moses says to God, "Don't forget your promises," you said it. We would agree. God was never going to forget anything, but we're getting a picture of how God in Christ is is going to to ultimately be pleased in his people there's going to be a greater moses who's going to come that means that for all of eternity this weak guy here who's got plenty of sin has forever access in christ and so prayer is important it's crucial but i think what this doctrine helps us to see is that we're not in a give and take with god but we are praying with the access that we have in Christ. Even Abraham and Moses would have, would have had access to God through the mediator to come. We have access to God through Christ. And it's a God who is unchanging, who knows everything, who doesn't need our prayers, but welcomes our prayers. And that's a glorious reality. Yeah. Let me, yeah, real fast, brother. And I said pure, uh, real fast because I thought kids were coming in, so, but I, I don't see them, so I take back what I said. Please keep going, brother. <laughs> Apologies. I thought kids were descending on us. Any other thoughts? Don't let me hurry you. Okay. Yeah, there are going to be some phrases in our confession that are more difficult to wrap our minds around. This one's probably one of those because it requires some, what do these words mean? What did they originally mean? But I think as we meditate on them and think about them, we will see that there is this glorious reality that is unfolded before us that helps us to understand, quite frankly, the the greatness of our God in ways that we hadn't before. That God is without body, parts, or passions. Well, let me pray for us, and I think some children are going to be coming our way. So... uh